News continues. Let's hand it over to Chris for Cuomo Primetime. Chris? Have a good weekend, Coop. I'm Chris Cuomo. Welcome to Primetime. Now we know what the DOJ was up to for weeks. Investigating and presenting a case to the grand jury that just indicted trumpet Steve Bannon. So, now will Meadows and the others cooperate? I don't ask that about Bannon because he may be happy with the latest news, believe it or not. Why? Makes him a martyr for his Trumpy cause of fighting to bring down America. He could go to jail for up to two years. Why? Yeah, you're looking at about a year max for a count of contempt. He has two. But that's doubtful. One thing he likely will do is surrender. Monday, he's going to have his day in court and will be arraigned on two contempt counts, one related to his refusal to appear before the January 6th committee because of the deposition, the other over his refusal to produce documents to the same committee. So as they say, this shizzle just got real. Contempt now has teeth for Congress. This is a clear message sent by the DOJ to others planning to follow in Bannon's footsteps. If you defy subpoenas from Congress, you will be criminally prosecuted. Attorney General Merrick Garland made that crystal today. Since my first day in office, I have promised Justice Department employees that together we would show the American people by word and deed that the department adheres to the rule of law. No Trump pal pardons this time. So the question is, who and what is next? My guess is Trump's former chief of staff. Why? Because Mark Meadows was a no-show for his deposition today before the January 6th committee. And the panel says his defiance will force it to consider pursuing contempt proceedings. Listen closely to this particular line in their statement. Mr. Meadows has failed to answer even the most basic questions, including whether he was using a private cell phone to communicate on January 6th and where his text messages from that day are. Is the committee implying Meadows was texting members of Congress that day from a non-government phone about government business? Where's the phone? If he trashed it, are those texts recoverable? The answer to that is likely yes. The value of Meadows and all the rest of them The value of them to the probe is obvious. They were the ones around the president. They were the ones doing the planning before, during, and after the insurrection. They know who knew what and did what and refused to do what. The question is, does any have a legitimate reason to not cooperate? Let's take that question to the better minds tonight in a special edition of Cuomo Court. We have former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig and Robert Ray, defended Trump at his first impeachment trial, also a former Whitewater independent counsel. Gentlemen, it's good to see you both. Nice to be with you, Chris. We'll do a prosecution defense style. Ellie Honig, uh, what is the answer to the question? Do any of these have a colorable claim uh, to not cooperate on the basis of privilege or otherwise? They can try, Chris, but they do it at their own risk of prosecution. We now know that. Now, look, Steve Bannon is the clearest possible case to prosecute out of all these witnesses for three reasons. One, the privilege is being invoked by a former president, which is an uphill climb legally. Two, Steve Bannon was not in the executive branch at the time of these 
communications. And three, even if the privilege applies, I would argue it doesn't apply to this kind of communication. It's meant to provide to apply to discussions about policy, not discussions about wrongdoing, which is January 6th in a nutshell. So I think there's real reason for concern among the other witnesses, and it'll be up to DOJ. And I think those would be righteous and necessary prosecutions if they're held in contempt as well. Counselor Ray, you would not be here if you agreed with that position. How do you see it? Well, I think the one thing we can all agree on is that there's not a whole lot of law in this area, and it's mostly from the, the Nixon era. So you're trying to figure out and navigate the, the contours of presidential privilege and who it extends to. I will say that, you know, traditionally the Justice Department since the Nixon era has taken a very broad view of the sanctity of executive branch communications and has sought to protect even those against former employees, which would obviously encompass somebody like um, Steve Bannon. Now, you know, whether it applies here, you know, Ellie is correct that, you know, this is the outer reaches if it does apply here, but he potentially has a defense. We'll see it play out. He's now been indicted. I imagine that one of his defenses will be an assertion of executive privilege as a bar uh, to a contempt proceeding. And, you know, that's going to take some time to sort all that out. Okay. With regard to Mark Meadows, I think, you know, at least I think we can also all agree that that's a little bit of an easier case. Mark Meadows was the former president's chief of staff. Now, it is the invocation of executive privilege with regard to a former president and the current president, who generally speaking is regarded as being the one in the best position to decide whether or not to assert or waive the privilege. We're in a situation now where there's a disagreement between a former president and a current president about whether or not executive privilege should cover this. You know, I, I mean, the Congress can take that step, as Ellie suggests, and try to hold Mark Meadows in contempt. But I mean, if, the, if presidential privilege doesn't protect the sanctity of communications between the president of the United States and his chief of staff, I'm not really sure what use that privilege would be. And certainly, you know, if, if the whole purpose of a privilege is to encourage free and open communications without risk that those uh, conversations would later be discoverable by Congress or anybody else, it would seem to me that that privilege is designed to well, encompass the chief of staff to the president. All right, understood. You, there's a lot there. Let's unpack some of the main things. First of all, uh, Ellie, back to you. But uh, Robert Ray saying that Biden is in the best position to uh, is a good turn of phrase. The privilege runs with the office, not the person. So it's not that he's in the best position. He is arguably the only person in a position to exercise the privilege. And there's also another assumption being made here, which is uh, that Meadows or Bannon or anyone else can refuse to do something on the basis of a privilege which is not theirs to exercise. So what do you believe the legalities here are guiding what can and cannot be done? So it's not just Bob Ray who says that the current president is in the best position. The Supreme Court said it in 1977 in the other Nixon case. It was what we call dicta, meaning they said it sort of in passing. But I think we all agree on that. One of the problems that we're dealing with here, though, is that Donald Trump and his acolytes have blown the doors off of executive privilege. They've taken any limitation. They've tried to take any limitation out of play. And I'll give you a couple examples. Let's look at Steve Bannon. He was just indicted. How is he going to possibly argue that his conversations are covered by executive privilege that he had with Rudy Giuliani, that he had with Bernard Carrick, that he had with John Eastman? None of them were members of the executive branch when they were in their war room in the Willard on January 5th. 
Is he possibly going to be able to argue that those are covered by the privilege? I mean, in my view, he gets convicted on those communications, his defiance of Congress on those communications alone. Similarly, yes, it's important when we're talking about Mark Meadows, the chief of staff is, is the closest advisor to the president, but that's not the end of the question. The court will ask, we have to ask, what were they talking about? And if they were talking about covering up for January 6th or the president's pleasure at January 6th, that's not covered by executive privilege. Mm. Uh, Robert Ray, a couple of problems. First one is uh, that you don't get to exercise the privilege. The president does. You would argue here by extension, the former president does. So Meadows and Bannon can't say I'm exercising the privilege. Uh, that's one problem. The second problem is that you say there's not a lot of law in this area. Well, there really isn't almost any law. This is a privilege that's gone through uh, executive action traditionally. And why should we assume that the Supreme Court will take up this matter because they've never taken it up before? Doesn't that assume that it's worth taking up? Well, look, on, you know, the Supreme Court has taken up these questions when they have uh, gotten to this point. And the Nixon era, I guess, is the only uh, relevant example. Um, and it's not like we're completely bereft of uh, any analogies as to how to handle privilege claims. I mean, lawyers deal with this, as you well know, and Ellie knows well all the time. I would analogize it, at least in part, uh, to uh, attorney-client privilege. I mean, you know, I understand the position in the political environment that truth is an absolute and that the committee is entitled to get after the truth. Uh, but, you know, we, we have privileges that also stand in the public interest to protect certain things, one would be attorney-client uh, communications, notwithstanding that they may actually reveal what the truth is. But and, that, and, that privilege, Robert, runs with the client yeah, until it does. they die. That is not an analog to what happens with a president. It runs with the office, not well, the office holder. But the executive branch has a claim here. Whether Joe Biden ha has chosen to assert it, you know, Donald Trump, as the, the Nixon versus administrator court also recognized, the former president does have the ability to assert the privilege. Now, whether it's enforceable or not, you know, I think is probably a facts and circumstances question. But here the former president has invoked, which is going to be relied upon by both Bannon in a, in a prosecution and presumably by Mark Meadows as well in, 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 in contention with, uh, you know, how he deals with, with Congress in the future. But how has Trump invoked the privilege to stop Bannon and or Meadows or anyone else from testifying, Ellie? He sent a letter saying, uh, yes, I would like you to not, I, I would like you to give me a chance to play this out in, in the courts and see how it comes out. Now, Bob's right that privileges are important. We shouldn't just throw all privileges out the window because we want to know everything. However, and that's exactly why Steve Bannon is in a tricky spot here. Steve Bannon would have been much better situated to defend himself if he was selective. If he said, I invoke privilege as to my specific subset of communications, perhaps communications that Donald Trump had with me about legitimate but policy issues. But isn't that something issues, Trump would have any. to do? How does Bannon invoke any privilege? He doesn't have one. It would be right, him so, as an instrument right, of Bannon Trump's is communications. Trying to, Exactly. He's trying to back in on Trump's very broad invocation. So what I said applies to both Trump and Bannon. If they were selective and said, I want to invoke the privilege only as to this narrow set of protected communications, they'd be in a much better situation. Instead, remember, Chris, 2019, April 2019, Donald Trump walks out onto the White House lawn and declares, we're fighting all the subpoenas. And if we thought he was kidding, no, he meant that literally. Right. And he has invoked executive privilege so broadly that he's hurting himself, he's hurting the people around him, and he's undermining the privilege itself. How do you think it winds up, Robert? 
Well, you, you know, the, the preferred way is what, has, as Ellie suggests, that you would invoke selectively once appearing to say, well, I can answer this question, but I can't answer this question because I, I think that it, it raises information that I think is protected by a privilege that the former president has asserted. That is the preferred course. I mean, the problem in this area is it would be helpful if a court would actually sort out this stuff first and then you could have testimony. The committee hasn't been willing to wait for that. And, you know, they've now brought a prosecution by the Department of Justice while you've got litigation pending before the D.C. Circuit that but raises at least. they don't believe it's well, a righteous claim. I mean, that's why, Robert, that you've never had a former president exercise it. You've only had it exercised through the current president by suggestion. The fact on your side is this is, well, if you don't protect communications between between the president when he's sitting and his staff, if you can always just unpack it afterwards, is that what was intended? And we'll see what the appellate co uh, court says on that. Yeah, I, they may be right or wrong about that, but it's a, I mean, I think it's a pretty dangerous position to be in terms of bringing a prosecution while you've got litigation outstanding that hasn't yet been resolved that at least raises, I think, what, what was probably going to be deemed a core issue here. And again, the Justice Department may think that has no merit, but nevertheless, there's still litigation pending. Well, we'll see what happens at the appellate court level. I have to tell you, especially on a Friday night, this is a real gift to the audience. Robert Ray, you made your position very explainable. <laughs> Ellie Honig, cogent as always. Um, really appreciate it, guys. Thank you Thanks very, very much. Thanks very much. All right, the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Getting more complicated. Closing arguments are coming. Why? Well, the jury could decide charges that weren't even offered up until now. Why? would the prosecution want more charges now? And what would they be? And the judge, is his demeanor an issue? Would it be the basis of a legal challenge? Next. A sad sign of the times. Tonight, 500 Wisconsin National Guard troops are on standby outside of Kenosha ahead of a potential verdict in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial next week. We're not even at the closings yet. That'll be on Monday. The judge uh, gave just under three hours for each side. It was a very dramatic week of testimony. You don't see a defendant in a case like this on the trial often. But he was there and he offered up an affirmative defense, which means that he had to offer proof of the same. There is a burden in proving the affirmative defense. Obviously, the prosecution has the ultimate burden, but the idea that Rittenhouse doesn't have to prove anything to claim self-defense doesn't make any sense, okay? I know people are saying that to you out there. They're lying. Now, the judge was also an issue. He had a bad relationship with this prosecutor, at times in the presence of the jury. Now, would that be an issue? Depends. How prejudicial was it? On what issues was it? What did it mean? Earlier today, prosecutors asked that the jury be allowed to consider lesser charges on several of the criminal counts. Why? They're hedging. After going through, this is the privilege of the prosecution, by the way. They have the ability to add or amend charges. But watching them this week, gauging Rittenhouse's effectiveness, they made this call. It shows that they aren't confident that they were going to get it on the original harsher charges. While the judge will issue a decision tomorrow, let's break down what he is likely to decide, whether he has good grounds to deny that, and what we saw this week. Top legal mind, Joey Jackson, and new friend of the show, 
Ellie Mistal, justice correspondent for the nation who has followed this case from the start. Uh, in deference uh, to our new friend of show, uh, Joey, let's give Ellie a crack at this. Uh, in terms of uh, your observations, uh, do you believe that lesser charges are going to be allowed? And do you believe this judge's demeanor will be heard about again on appeal by the prosecution? The judge has been extremely biased towards Rittenhouse from the beginning, not of the trial, but of the entire case. I'm talking about his pretrial motions, um, his refusal to kind of force Rittenhouse to adhere to his bail um, release terms, and that is carried through straight through the trial to the point where on the last day of the trial, Rittenhouse's uh, expert witness got a, stand, got a clapping from the jury pool because the judge ordered them um, to, to, to give a cheer for veterans on Veterans Day, and it just so happened that the expert witness was a veteran. So the, the judge's demeanor has been biased throughout. Does that lead to an appeal? Well, not if there's an acquittal. Quite frankly, we, we, have, it, we have a system um, um, where if you are acquitted of a crime, it becomes very hard for the prosecution to retry you. It's called double jeopardy. It's a great rule. We probably shouldn't live in, we don't want to live in a world where the prosecution gets to try again and again and again um, to, to get people until they get it right. But because of double jeopardy, any, any motion that isn't kind of appealed all the way up to the Wisconsin State Supreme Court in real time, which none of these have been, means that whatever, if, if Rittenhouse walks on whenever the jury, you know, sometime next week, that's it. That's ball game um, in terms of this case, this circumstance, this, uh, this, this, uh, this case. Very fair analysis. Um, however, Joey, the comma is, what if it's hung? Uh, and they want to retry, uh, and the prosecution wants to bolster their case. Uh, that's where misgivings about this judge's demeanor may come up. But more imminently, do you believe the judge allows the prosecutor to present lesser degrees of the charges or additional charges? Yeah, well, a couple of things. I mean, you could argue the judge's bias. I think you'd have a good argument, as Ellie suggested, in that regard. But let's remember, before we get into that, Chris, that he allowed for provocation to be argued by prosecutors. That's huge. What does that mean in English? It means that the jury will be instructed, right? Jurors are given specific instructions as to how to evaluate the facts. If the jury concludes that Rittenhouse provoked the attack, then you lose the privilege of arguing self-defense. And so that is a major boon for prosecutors. Can you not uh, argue it perfect or imperfect at that point? Can you argue it partially at that point or no, not at no. all in Wisconsin? No. It's totally no. Be yes, because what you're saying is you have to exhaust. It becomes a high father, a high, higher burden, really from a defense perspective, because now you have to say that you've exhausted all and every avenue before you actually engage in the act of self-defense. So this was a big, big win for the prosecution. With respect to lesser included offenses, let's just be clear about what they are. You mentioned it, Chris, that you hedge your bets, right? Because what happens is sometimes you go all or nothing if you're the prosecutor. It's either you convict on the top counts as they are delineated, he was intending to kill, he recklessly killed, he killed with depravity, 
or nothing. What they said, mm, maybe it's not that. It could be some degree less than that. Maybe it's not a depraved heart, but it could be something else. And that gives the jurors more bites at the apple to convict you. And so that right. in and of itself, if the judge permits and allows lesser included offenses, it may not get a conviction on the top counts, but it gets a conviction of another count. Right. And that can be detrimental. And that's why we saw, Chris, the judge really allocuting him and saying to him, do you recognize what lesser included are? Are you agreeing to that? Do you realize that by agreeing, you, you can increase your probability of a conviction? But I think that, that last point, Chris, it, the uh, instruction is given if there's any view of the evidence which would support that charge. And so you weigh the facts. And if there's any view of the evidence, right, that supports the charge, then you give the instruction. So it, it could be likely that the judge could do just that with respect to other lesser included offenses. Ellie, last word to you. Uh, here's the question. Uh, do you believe that Rittenhouse against the prosecution came out on top in the victim versus vigilante analysis? That's what provocation uh, is about, whether or not he started this and therefore he can't claim defense or this was done to him and he had to run for his life and that's why he had to shoot. Which do you think came out more cogently? Well, I think Rittenhouse did because the judge didn't really let the prosecution put on the case. Like that's the big, that was the big bias that I saw in this case. The prosecution was trying to make various kinds of provocation arguments throughout and the judge repeatedly cut them off. So when you say like, how's the jury going to look at it? It's kind of like saying, well, how do I look if you only photograph me like above my first chin? I look thin, right? I, I could be a thin guy. It's only when you get the full picture that you understand how svelte I am, right? And that's I'm here for all of it, by the at. way, Ellie. I'm here for every piece. You look so good. The, <laughs> the jury only got what Bruce Schrader, what the judge allowed them to see. And if you only look at what the judge allowed them to see, I think it's a very tough case for the prosecution. And that goes to the sad thing that you mentioned at the start of your program, that you've got that's why they're troops in Wisconsin. It's because we it's not because we are a violent nation or ripping. It's because we don't trust the system. We don't trust the process. We see the judge. We hear his ringtones. We see his answers. We see the jury, which is 15 to one in terms of 12 jurors, uh, four alternates, 15 to one white people versus one person of color. We see all that. And, th and that's why you have troops on the ground in Wisconsin right now. Ellie Mistal, thank you very much. Joey Jackson, as always, a pleasure. Welcome to the show. Don't beat yourself up like that, Ellie. On hair alone, <laughs> you win the contest, right? Joey and I, we're not the worst looking guys, but you beat us because you got a signature look. All right, have a great weekend. I'll see you both again soon. All right, thank to the other so. big case with vigilante and racial undertones. The defense attorney at the Ahmad Arbery murder trial is sort of apologizing for his comments about black pastors. I can't believe I even just said black pastors. You're either a pastor or you're not. This was code. So is an apology enough? Or should he be removed from the case as a rep for the Arbery's, uh, for, for, uh, as a rep for the defendant? Arbery's family wants that. Should they get it? Next. One of the defense attorneys in the Ahmad Arbery murder trial, you've actually seen him on this show. He tried to do his own PR in court today. Listen. Very well. I, I will let the court know that if my statements yesterday were overly broad, I will follow up with a more specific motion on Monday, uh, putting that and those concerns in the proper context.
and my apologies to anyone who might have inadvertently been offended. Number one, you don't apologize for anyone who may have inadvertently been offended. That's not apologizing. That's kind of putting it on them. If you think you said something you shouldn't have said, you say what you've heard me say before. I'm sorry. I did not mean how that came out. I shouldn't have said it. Now, that would have been the right thing for this counselor to say, to apologize for this. We don't want any more black pastors coming in here or other Jesse Jackson, whoever was in, was in here earlier this week, sitting with the victim's family, trying to influence a jury in this case. And I'm not saying the state is even aware that Mr. Sharpton was in the courtroom. I certainly wasn't aware of it till last night. But I think the court can understand my concern. Yeah. Your concern is that you don't want people there uh, that project the outrage and the pain in this situation. You want to make sure that the people watching are as friendly to your client as possible. But the way you said it was offensive and projected a prejudice. Now, keep in mind, the judge said he had no objection to the Reverend Al Sharpton, not Jesse Jackson. You re- this guy really doesn't know the difference between these two men? Sharpton was there. Jesse Jackson wasn't there before, but now he's coming. So are around 100 other pastors. We don't have black and white pastors. You know, you don't say black police, white police, right? We got to get away from that. We don't want to play to it. If you watch this show, you likely know the level of, practor, of lawyering practiced by Kevin Guff. You saw it when he came on and failed to explain what his client, William Roddy Bryan Jr., was doing recording Arbery's death in the first place. In fact, he embarrassed his own client. Listen to this. In the police report, uh, the McMichaels referred to a Roddy. I'm assuming that was you, yes? Okay. Hey, hold on, Chris. Mr. Bryan, uh, how did you come to be in the car videotaping that day. Okay, we're not going there. You don't want to talk about that either. All right. We didn't play the part where he was like, basically saying his client's too stupid to answer any of these questions for himself. So that's what you're dealing with. The reason this lawyer saying something about black pastors resonates is because it speaks to what this trial is all about. The fear of blackness for the defendants. Why else did they decide to chase this guy jogging through there? You don't think it had anything to do with the fact that he was black? Now look, it's not a bias-specific crime, but it doesn't have to be. And it's not just about what happens in the courtroom. I tell you all the time, we only know what we show in a courtroom. But in the court of public opinion and all the political and cultural undertones, we got to keep it real. And that's what it was about. Now, at trial, today's testimony focused on some um, black person checking out a construction site. It's why the defendants say they thought something was wrong when they saw a black man jogging in their neighborhood. It's why the judge even called out the defense team for intentionally keeping black people out of the jury box. And now it's a concern over black pastors in the courtroom. You see the trend? Now to a different courtroom and a much different kind of result. Britney Spears finally freed today, not just from daddy, but from the conservatorship entirely. 
Fans are going wild. What Brittany is saying to them tonight and why her legal fights could be far from over. Got somebody who was outside that courtroom along with many others. She's co-creator of a documentary that shined light on the Free Britney movement, really was a huge catalyst. Next. Gotta change the hashtag. Free Britney now has to be flipped. Britney is free because Spears is no longer under the confinement of a 13-year conservatorship. It was terminated today by a judge's ruling, legally returning her power to oversee her own personal affairs, financial and otherwise, to her. Estimated $60 million estate. I gotta say, it really sounds low for somebody who's made so much money for so long. We never really saw that pursued. Maybe we will now. Outside the courthouse, hundreds of fans celebrated, some feeling vindicated by their years-long push to free Britney from her father's control. This was the pop star's message to fans shortly after the news. Quote, good God, I love my fans so much, it's crazy. I think I'm going to cry the rest of the day. Best day ever. Praise the Lord. Can I get an amen? Amen, Brittany. Hashtag freed Brittany. But her battles are not over. Her lawyer has pushed for her father. That's a very savvy move, by the way. Her lawyer is pushing for the father to be investigated for his alleged abuse and misconduct. A lot of people run away once they get what they want uh, and they forget to pursue the full claim. Here they're not doing that. And I'm telling you, the amount of the estate may also come out in that. Britney Spears, she's been making so much money, so much success, so many hits, so much touring for so long. $60 million may be, you know, a fortune to anybody else, but to somebody like that? Now, Liz Day knows this saga in and out as the co-creator of the New York Times documentary, Framing Britney Spears. How do you feel about today? I'm really, really shocked at how quickly we got to this place. You know, Britney spoke out in June. A month later, she gets her own lawyer. And then a few months after that, we're looking at the end of the conservatorship completely. And it really makes you wonder how earlier this could have happened. Why do you think it happened as quickly as it did? I think because she finally, for the first time, got to choose her own lawyer, and she selected someone very aggressive uh, named Matthew Rosengart, and he started to file to depose her father and really do a full investigation, which no one had ever really talked about before. Yeah, savvy take, you know, because people point uh, to, well, you know, judges were keeping this going uh, for a long time, so obviously there was some reason, yeah, or there was never any side, other side to the case presented. It was the father going before a tribunal who figured, well, it's his daughter. He must be telling the truth. Which one do you think it was? I think the latter is probably more likely, and no one had ever filed to terminate the conservatorship either. Good point. Good point. Now, not over yet. Um, pushing for an investigation of the father. But what do you make of, because you understand the situation so well, I know $60 million is a lot of money. But if that is the real number, it sounds low for somebody who's been successful for almost, what, 20 years? She's been killing it at the top of the charts, touring all over uh, the uh, gig she has in Vegas. Is that part of any future questions? Absolutely. That is the central question that's going to be looked at. You know, a lot of experts 
point out that she should be worth a lot more. She's had like a billion dollar perfume business, that successful Vegas residency, huge royalties. Where is that money? Mm. Now, uh, one of the obstacles in this litigation going forward is her stomach for going after her own father. What do you think happens there? When she spoke out in June, she said she wanted her father and everyone else involved in the conservatorship to go to jail. So I think it sounds as if she wants a full investigation. But yeah, I mean, it could take a really long time. It could be really expensive. So we don't know. Could be emotional also. I want you to listen, please, to Matthew Rosengart, uh, Brittany's attorney, very savvy guy, polished um, you know, practitioner in this area. Listen to what he said. If Brittany instructs, we will pursue James Spears' deposition. We will pursue the discovery that we served on him in the form of interrogatories, document requests, and other information we're seeking, both in regard to financial information, alleged financial misconduct, and the electronic surveillance issue. Now, you touched on that in your documentary, uh, the alleged abuses, including the use of the hidden electronic surveillance. Um, I want to know what you think about how strong that evidence is, but also that first phrase from the lawyer, if Brittany instructs, do you think that there may be a little bit of tension for her about, you know, her going after her own father? And what do you think about the proof? Sorry. Go ahead. I mean, I think the proof is quite strong because we vetted our whistleblower story, you know, extremely thoroughly, as the New York Times would do. We listened to the audio recordings. We authenticated the text message uh, surveillance evidence. You know, we went to great lengths to make sure that his story was accurate and that we could corroborate it independently. Um, in terms of Britney's stomach to go after her father, again, I don't know. But from what she said in June, it sounds like she really does want to, you know, see him go to jail for what he's done to her. So we see a big TBC here to be continued. I know that you'll be on it and you're always welcome here to give us the latest on this. But I got to tell you, there should be a source of pride for you. Um, to me, this has never been an entertainment story. I don't cover entertainment. Um, but conservatorships are rare. They're supposed to be selective and they're supposed to be for people who are in extremists. And this never made sense. And yet it endured for so long. Liz Day, thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Good luck going forward. So we just marked Veterans Day, but we can't just move on because that's what we do. We love the troops. Do we walk the walk? You got to shine a light on what they face. Service takes a toll physically and mentally, whether you're abroad fighting the bad guys or not, because they're still human beings and all human beings struggle. But in the military, there is often a culture, a stigma against dealing with it. It's weak. An Air Force sergeant just took his own life at the Lincoln Memorial this week. Ken Santiago. I want to bring in his longtime friend. Uh, you see him sitting with him in the same spot last year. He's a veteran himself. What does he want to tell us about his friend and what this situation screams out about the needs for service members in our society? Next. Tragedy at the Lincoln Memorial just days before Veterans Day. Air Force Sergeant Kenny Santiago, just 31 years old, killed himself Monday night. He was found on the steps of the monument, according to reporting from The Washington Post. Just moments earlier, he posted a heartbreaking message, especially because it was so clear-eyed on Facebook 
talking about how it can be hard to tell when someone is suffering and depressed, that nobody could help him. Don't even try. His friends and loved ones saw the post and begged him not to end his life, but it was too late. It's hard not to feel a lump in the throat when you hear this story. But the truth is, as of 2019, there are an average of 17 suicides a day among veterans. It's not including active duty military. Now, I want you to look at this picture. It's Kenny on the right, just in April, sitting on the same Lincoln Memorial steps with his childhood friend, Edison Naranjo Mejia. He's a veteran. And Edison joins me tonight. Edison, I am so sorry for your loss, brother. I'm sorry to meet you under these circumstances, but I want people to hear your friend's story. I appreciate you having me. What do you want us to know about how your friend lived before we get to how his life ended? He, he had an amazing life. Uh, he was self-driven. He was hardworking. He had a lot of goals, and he was very driven to make sure he reached those goals. Um, he started the Air Force 12 years ago, and he was just climbing high, high until he got what he wanted. Um, but his goals got cut short. This comes to you as a complete shock. Did you know he was struggling? Was it something that he felt he could be open about? Um, I, I was starting to have my suspicion, um, and we had a conversation um, about a week ago before it happened, but there was, there was no red flags. There was no, the words weren't depressed in it. There was no, there was no alarms for me to be concerned or say something. He, he told me that he was going to see someone and there were improvements. He had moved so that way he's a lot with more people and, and happier and stuff, some changes. And I thought that those were all good signs, but I guess they weren't. Well, it's an illness, brother. It's an illness mm -hmm. and it is so hard to control. But unlike so many, he was dealing with it, though, right? He was getting some help. Uh, I think he attempted. I, I don't know the details about whether he was getting help or not. Um, but was he, he resistant? Was he resistant to it? Did he feel like somehow it wasn't consistent with being the big, strong man that he was, the military man that he was? I think he was worried. Um, I mean, he he had a high security clearance. Uh, he was he was as a flight attendant or whatever the Air Force calls a flight attendant. So he was up there with the the VIPs of Washington. And if they were to ever find out that he had these kind of struggles, uh, what would happen to his career that he's tried so hard to work for? It's the stigma. You know, he wouldn't have felt mm -hmm. like that if he had diabetes, you know, or, right. you know, leukemia. You know, he wouldn't worry about, will people see me differently? What do you think it is about these types of struggles that people feel are going to make them less than? Uh, it's, they just, they feel like the vulnerability, vulnerability is not allowed. Um, and I think there's also not enough support. Um, I mean, I think the military is saying that they're trying, but the training is being up in the higher leadership and not really in the front lines leadership where they're supposed to. The people that actually see the, the airmen or soldiers uh, every single day and interact with them. Um, and so when these people need help, they don't know where they're going to, who to talk to, and there's no confidential. So if he says something, there's going to be some consequences involved. Edison, I'm so sorry about your friend. And I hope I that telling people about his story, he had everything going for him. I hope it just reminds yeah. people that just because someone looks great doesn't mean they're doing great. I appreciate Absolutely. you. And I wish you the Thank best. You condolences to the family. Thank you. To the Santiago family, I am so sorry. 
and I hope that telling this story uh, gives some purpose to Kenny's legacy. If you need support, it's just like having a bad knee. It's just like having a bad arm. It's just like having something that's wrong with you, cancer, anything. You go to somebody who can help. The National Suicide Prevention Line, 1-800-273-TALK. 1-800-273-8255. I'm going to tweet it out. And as we all have to know by now, it is not strong to resist what's wrong. We'll be right back with the handoff. That's right, I said it. The shizzle is rizzle now when it comes to messing with Congress's subpoenas. Now people know that contempt has teeth. What will it mean for Bannon? But more importantly, what will it mean for the others that the probe wants to talk to? That's the question. Now we take for the answer to the big show. Don Lemon tonight and its big star. The shizzle is for rizzle. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.